Hi, welcome to the eighth part of the Homeric World section of the BGS Classics podcast. This one's on the portrayal of key characters. Um, and we're not including Odysseus in this. If you want to know about the uh, character of Odysseus, that was in section seven, uh, so section 2.7. So I'm going to start with talking about uh, the role of the gods in the Odyssey. Um, and uh, there will be a little bit of overlap here with something we've said in uh, the character of Odysseus part, um, but we're really talking about what the gods are like here rather than what the gods say about um, the character of Odysseus. So the gods and goddesses of the Odyssey um, are very often um, some of the most confusing characters for a modern audience because most um, modern novels, and I say most, there are of course some examples these days, uh, some exceptions rather these days, um, but most modern novels um, don't include a kind of a, a deity sort of popping up from time to time. Um, so it's worth just getting yourself used to the concept of the gods. Of course, if you're doing the myth and religion section, you will already have got some sort of idea of that. Um, but for example, Zeus, he's in control. Um, now, Zeus is probably the closest, for those of you who um, know any passages from the Bible, um, he's probably the closest to the Christian, the Judeo-Christian kind of um, Abrahamic idea of um, a god who's in charge, um, a god who kind of controls all of human action. Um, he tends to get sort of held responsible. He's, you know, it's his, it's his shout as to what actually happens at the end of the day. Um, and yet sometimes he can't actually control everything. So it's this idea of um, when fate says that um, Odysseus must reach home, he says, well, even if I wanted to, I couldn't change this. Um, so there's a little bit of a kind of confusion um, possible on what Zeus can achieve and what he can't. Um, he's... Um, he's pretty fickle, in a sense, in that there are things that Zeus does which seem to contradict each other. So, for example, um, he wants he wants Odysseus's men to suffer, but then actually, uh, you know, he then sort of very much looks after them and sort of tries to make sure that they don't get in trouble. Um, and sometimes Zeus is um, persuaded in that by the other gods. So, um, you know, particularly Athena coming to sort of request him and say, hang on, Zeus, what's going on here? Um, and she's sort of um, very obviously um, helping him. Um, the, um, and, and uh, you know, it's worth saying that having mentioned Athena, she is the one that um, does feature sort of most prominently um, in a sense. You know, she's, she's the one that pops up to help him from time to time. Um, not so much in books nine to ten because uh, she sort of disappears off the scene a little bit, although that may be because Odysseus is not aware that she is actually helping him during those books. But certainly later on, um, there's a lot going on um, that she helps with um, and not least um, the situation with the suitors and making sure that he gets away um, from them. So it's worth thinking, I've mentioned Zeus, I've mentioned Athena, there are only two real other gods who have any sort of um, uh, appearance in the books that you read. That's Hermes, um, and you've got the antidote to Circe's magic, you know, the advice on what to do, you know, very specific instructions. And that is Circe himself, uh, Circe herself, um, who is this divine entity um, and kind of has this power beyond a normal mortal um, level of power. Um, so, you know, 
it's it's uh, not a case of going through the books looking for all 12 or 13 gods mm. that you've learned from the myth and religion. Um, it's a lot more a case of trying to make sure you focus on some specific passages where Zeus, Athena, Hermes, Circe do some very specific things that um, kind of exemplify what they are as gods. It's, it's about what the examiner's looking for is how do the gods affect Odysseus's journey home? How do they hinder or how do they help him? And you might be asked, how are the gods interesting as characters? At which point you're asked more than simply to state their interactions. At that point, you now need to talk about their attributes and their characteristics. How are they like humans? And how are they more powerful than humans? What magic or powers do they have? How do they choose to interact with each other? So we know that uh, Zeus is this hierarchical top figure and he tells Hermes to go and give a message uh, about the antidote down to, uh, to Odysseus. And how do they interact with Odysseus? Why do they interact with Odysseus? Why do they help or hinder? Um, do they appear in their own form or do they appear in some kind of guise? Um, and why might they choose to interact? The next group of characters you might need to think about are the suitors. Now, it's quite clear and it's quite easy to list the negatives about the suitors. They turn up in Odysseus's palace. They, they are vying for the hand of Penelope. When her husband isn't proven yet to be dead. Um, they sleep with the female slaves of Odysseus's household. They eat his food, uh, they drink his wine, and we, we learn that early on they plan to murder Telemachus. And none of these things are, are laudable or praiseworthy. These are reasons and these are negative things that we can say about the suitors. In the exam, if you're going to be asked a question about the suitors, it is worth naming individual suitors and talking about them specifically. So the leader, we can begin with him, Antinous. There's lots and lots to say about him in terms of his leadership, in terms of the fact that he, he's responsible for a lot of the actions. We even have him calling Eumaeus and Philoetius, Philoetius snivelling peasants. Um, they threaten Odysseus himself when he's dressed as a beggar and asks to have a go with the, uh, the bow. He even abuses other suitors. So he's, he's rude to Leodes when he fails to string the bone. The, the second in command, if you will, is Eurymachus. And what do we learn about him as a character? Well, he's more concerned about his own reputation. Whether this is actually just a cover for his failings is up to you. But what we do know is that he actually says himself in book 21, I'm not bothered about the marriage. Um, he says that you know, there are plenty more women in, in Achaea. What, what he wants is not to be seen as incapable. Uh, he thinks it would be a disgrace that if, he, if he can't string the bow. Um, other suitors who are named later on, we have uh, Leodes, who I mentioned earlier, is the priest of the, um, of the suitors. Now, as a religious figure, we might think that he was capable of making the ethical decision not to join in the negative actions of the suitors. 
And in book 22, he begs Odysseus for mercy. And, and Odysseus says, de denies him that mercy. He does kill him. And his reason is, Odysseus's reason is that Leodes came here willingly. Now, there are two more characters who are of the suitors party, but they're not necessarily suitors in that they are not vying necessarily for the hand of um, Penelope. But um, they are named and they are Medon and Anthemius. Thank you. Phemius, the bard and the herald. And they're notable in that they are spared. So at the end, and it's at the request of Telemachus. So Telemachus argues to his father, and it's, and it's a quite interesting moment we'll look at later with Telemachus, when Odysseus says to his son, you can basically, you know, you can make a decision here. And he says, actually, remember the suitors have been here for 10 years. They've gone from Telemachus' childhood to his adulthood. They were kind to me when I was younger. And so he lets them free. They're given their free. They, they aren't killed alongside the other suitors. Now, why does Homer choose to set free the bard and the herald? Maybe it's because Homer himself, as a bard, wants the bard to survive. Or maybe it's because Odysseus wants his kleos, his fame, his repute to be taken out to the world. And how would you get your reputation, your story out there in the ancient world? It is through the bardic tradition of people singing your achievements, or it's a herald announcing the news of what you've done. Now, mentioning um, Phemius uh, reminds me of um, a little tip if you want to try and remember those names, because ultimately um, there are a lot of names. And uh, whilst it is a great idea in an exam to bring up the names because it really hammers that point home, it can be really tough. Um, it's worth bearing in mind Phemius, for example, means the guy who says things. Um, now, you don't have to know Greek to, to be able to read um, Odyssey for um, class civ, um, but in Greek, fermi is a word meaning I speak. So he's the speaker. Um, he's given that name um, as a sort of um, indication of his job, if you like. Um, and it's worth trying to keep in mind um, that the two main suitors, Antinous means the guy who thinks badly about you or the guy who's against you. So the anti bit. So think of, you know, we use that, that term in English all the time, don't we? He's sort of anti. He's very anti it. Um, and he's, he is a very sort of nasty character in that sense. And then Eurymachus, you might have heard him called Eurymachus um, or Eurymachus. We, we mentioned um, that pronunciation earlier. Um, but the mac bit means um, something to do with fighting. Um, there is a, a limit to how useful that is because, of course, you've also got the likes of Telemachus who, who ends the same. So so um, it, it can be just one of those things where you just need to kind of try your best to sort of remember ways of um, remembering the names. But um, it's uh, it's also really important, as as was mentioned earlier, to think of the suitors not as being a group of individuals or not as being individuals, but as being a group. They've got leaders, but they're seen as being this big kind of chunk of people that, that sort of think and say the same. Sometimes Homer has them, you know, he says, and, and one of the suitors said, and then he doesn't say which one it is, um, because they're supposed to be sort of all equally responsible. That's one of the things that makes it OK, from Homer's point of view, um, for Odysseus to do what he does at the very end, which we'll, we'll come to, of course. Um, but um, another group of uh, people who are seen very much um, as uh, a collective, if you like, are the crew. And sometimes I think, you know, it's, it's very deliberate that um, Homer represents the crew and the suitors as being kind of a, a similar kind of idea. 
Um, and yet, of course, the crew are supposed to be on Odysseus's side. The suitors are supposed to be against them. And when you get exceptions, so like, for example, really important um, and actually quite memorable um, episode this, when the suitors have a look at the bag of winds and say, hang on, this is book 10 now, um, hang on, what's going on here? He's got lots of um, fantastic uh, gold here that he's, uh, he's not going to share with us. That's an example of um, the crew turning against him. Um, similarly, when the suitors realise that the game is up later on in the Odyssey, um, they say, oh, you know, a few of them say, oh, well, please, please um, sort of spare me. So Laodes says, oh, please spare me. And then, you know, Phemius and, um, and Medon end up getting getting uh, a bit of mercy. Um, so you've got this idea of that they're not always treated quite the same. But the crew, of course, the most obvious thing about them is that they all die. So every single one of them dies. So 600 men um, and 599 of them. I mean, I'm, I'm being too precise, of course. Homer doesn't really imagine a precisely 600 to the, to, to the man. But um, 599 of them, let's say, die. Okay, Odysseus is the only one left over at the end. Partly Odysseus's fault, partly their fault, partly, in fact, probably mainly um, the fault of fate, the fault of the gods. How do they die? Well, it's worth going through mm. bit by bit, actually, um, you know, as you go through, whether it's with a pencil and a book or whether it's on, on an iPad sort of, you know, highlighting and actually saying, here's who dies um, at this point, here's who dies then, and try and sort of see the dwindling number of uh, suitors as the, um, the epic goes by. Elpenor is the last one, okay? So at the end of book 10, he's got um, 43 left. So uh, some of you, I'm sure, will be able to immediately do the maths in your head. Um, he's lost sort of 557 of them. Um, I think that's right. Um, and 43 left. And Elpenor, of course, famously um, dies just before they head into the underworld by falling off uh, the roof. Um, I'm sure it's happened uh, to all of us at some point. <laughs> um, and just kidding, by the way. Um, and, uh, you know, again, you can kind of look back and work out, you know, there's people eaten um, by the Cyclops and there's people slaughtered by the Lystragonians. Um, and, and, you know, it's very easy to think that the, the Cyclops uh, episode is more famous because it's, it's more important. And yet, if you're looking at the crew dying, the Lystragonians um, is, is the big, um, big number, if you like. And, and if you look at specific numbers of deaths in the books we read, he loses six men from each boat when he battles the Sicones. He loses six men in total to the Cyclops. Um, and he loses all the men in all the boats apart from his own to the Lystagonians. And Elpenor to a roof. And Elpenor to, uh, to a fall, an unfortunate fall. Um, looking at examples of specific crew, um, Eurylochus mm. is the main guy. Now, I'm sorry, I know he begins with Yuri as well, just like Eurymachus did, the one of the suitors. Um, but the Locus bit is a much more positive Greek word than the Machus bit um, in that kind of context. Um, and so um, he's he's a good guy, and yet even he is a little bit dubious about Odysseus's leadership. Um, and he's also portrayed as being a little bit of a coward. Mm. Um, he kind of says, 
oh, are we sure we're doing the right thing here, Odysseus? And then later on, um, he reports what's happened to Circe, uh, sorry, to, to his men um, in on Circe's island. And he says, please don't take me back. And he starts crying um, because he can't cope with this concept of what's happened to them. Um, and then he says, well, shall we just go off and leave the men there? Um, now, actually, in hindsight, of course, they were all going to die anyway, so you might as well have done. But Odysseus basically says, no, I'm going to go and get them. You know, we, we're going to we're going to be good to our men. Um, and uh, Odysseus um, is, is the guy who sort of, um, you know, will look after his men in the way that um, some of the suitors, you kind of almost want to say, well, is he setting Eurylochus up as, a, as an alternative leader um, so that he can demonstrate Odysseus's great leadership. Um, and again, I will come back to this fact, of course, that y- you have to remember who is telling this story. The answer is, of course, Homer. But in this book, book nine and ten, Homer is having Odysseus tell the story. And so strangely enough, Eurylochus comes up very badly um, as a leader so that Odysseus can say, and yet I was a great leader and I did this. So um, really important. Um, I've mentioned so many of those different pas- passages. Bag of Winds, I would say, is, is one of the keys um, always to sort of trot out when you're talking about um, the, the crew, um, but also, you know, the, the Cyclops um, and also um, those various things we've, we've mentioned. The, the other moment where the crew make poor decisions is with uh, on the island of the Sicones. They decide to stay for another day. Uh, whereas Odysseus was arguing for moving on with what they have. And that's when, of course, more Sikonas from inland, who are more battle experienced and bigger in number, uh, come along and he loses 72 of his men. Now, moving to individuals from large groups, we end up, we, we come across Polyphemus, this, this, this giant, this monster, this uh, cyclops. Now, we've talked about him lots in, in, in our podcast already, but right now we're going to think of him as a character and whether he was civilised or uncivilised. Now, it's let's go through the, the harder thing first. Let's look at what he did that was good and kind and positive. He shows consideration for his livestock. He milks them gently. He has baskets, presumably you know woven, um, and he puts them into their appropriate pens and he puts the, the babies to their mothers to milk. So he shows a tenderness and a kindness to his animals and an orderliness. Now, apart from this, what we see with Polyphemus is a brutality, a lack of civilization. And, but let's break it down into specifically what he does that, that breaks the rules of civilization. He lives alone in a cave. He doesn't interact with his neighbours. He doesn't grow food. He's not planting and sowing seeds. And this, for the Greeks, is definitely a sign of barbarism. So he's, you know, he's, he has livestock and he takes their milk. And that's all he has. He's not familiar with viticulture or how to make wine or how to drink wine. Wine is alien to him. And again, to the Greeks, being you know, ignorant of wine and not mixing it with water, drinking it neat, shows a barbarism, shows a lack of civilization. He's arrogant. He thinks that his race is better than that of the gods, even though Zeus is his uncle. So there's a hubris there. Um, and he doesn't respect Xenia. We've talked about Xenia before in the themes, this idea of hospitality. And remember that Xenia is, 
is the is an attribute of Zeus. So it's an incredibly important thing to respect. And he makes a mockery of it. He eats his guests. Um, and he traps his men in the cave. There is dung piled up around the cave, very uncivilized. Um, and so it's quite easy to 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 label him as an uncivilized character, but make sure you can list a few of his positives first. A contrasting character, and yet one who is um, potentially more dangerous in a different way, is of course Cersei. So book 10, Cersei pops up. Um, and she's the perfect host, in a sense, um, at first. She's, um, you know, got these um, kind of strange guard dogs, if you like, who turn out to be not dogs, but wolves and lions. Um, although it's never really clear quite why this is uh, her thing, but she just fancies it because it's, it's uh, a diversion. Um, she's famous um, for turning his turning Odysseus's men into pigs which she does as a sort of almost as a joke almost as a sort of game because she's uh, she's bored um living as an immortal but she has um maids she has this these amazing sort of I sort of imagine they're all uh, kind of these uh, wonderful um you know, um, tin baths that are sort of, you know, these lovely sort of steaming water in the bath that she um, she gives to her guests. She gives fresh clothes. Um, she gives advice. She gives gifts. Um, and so in a sense, Xenia, well, she's pretty good at Xenia, actually. She, she understands it. Um, and in the way that the Cyclops just doesn't really have any sense of why he should do Xenia. She knows she should. It's just she wants to mess around and she wants to turn his men into a pig. Um, she wants to kind of be um, some kind of, uh, well, you know, I was going to say witch, but uh, witch is a very loaded word, I think. Um, certainly she, she wants to kind of act like a um, kind of a cunning um, female character in, in that kind of sense. Homer wants her to be that. Um, but it's worth remembering that for all the kind of negativity, for all the fact that visually um, in, your, in your mind, you're thinking the men are pigs. It's worth remembering this luxury that Cersei provides for the men in the, in the sense that they want to stay forever. They, they kind of sit around and they need to be reminded to leave by Hermes. Um, and she's massively useful to him because she tells him what to do next. And without her advice on who to see in the underworld, um, you know, the story would not have c kind of continued in a sense. So, yeah, dangerous, you know, vicious, um, cunning, and yet helpful, useful, and good at Xenia. Another character who is an excellent uh, host is Penelope. So the wife of uh, Odysseus is at home Loyally looking after the household, begrudgingly looking after the suitors, and using her wit and wiles, just like Odysseus, to keep them at bay. Now, by the, you know, the, the, the tropes and mores of the ancient Greek world, there's only so much she can do. She cannot refuse these men hospitality or the rules of Xenia. She cannot oust them from her household, nor can Telemachus, her son, at this stage, early in the story, he's too young. So she tolerates and she welcomes them. She obeys Xenia. That doesn't mean she doesn't speak her mind. She tells Antinous when, he's, um, when he abuses Odysseus, he said he's neither just nor right Antinous to deny his man, his due to a man who came to Telemachus' house as a guest. 
she speaks out against Eurymachus as well. She shows, she shows her cunning with the, um, the funeral shroud. She tells the suitors, I must weave a funeral shroud. My husband has died. I cannot pick a suitor a hand in marriage until I've finished. So they see her every day weaving away. When they go to bed, she spends the evening unpicking what she's done so that the job never finishes. Now that shows her wit, but also it adheres to this trope of um, the dutiful wife. Even a queen, in fact, even a goddess, female figure, we expect, uh, the ancient Greek audience expects to see them doing the household chores of a woman, which in this case is weaving. When we first meet Circe, the goddess, she is weaving. Um, so she's a dutiful host. She's a um, authoritative queen. She's a wit comparable to Odysseus um, and mother to Telemachus. Which leads me on nicely to Telemachus, of course. Um, now, he's got to be 20 um, because if <laughs> his dad's been away for 19 years and we are absolutely certain that Odysseus really is his father um, because of the insistence of Homer that Penelope has been faithful to him um, all the way through, then he's got to be 20. There are times he doesn't really seem like he's 20. Um, but it's worth remembering that uh, the Greek um, civilization have this, this concept of, you know, uh, childhood sort of maybe continuing on a little bit longer, um, for men at least, and for women probably um, childhood is shorter, it's fair to say, um, but for men, you know, um, and certainly for Telemachus in his situation, he's not really grown up despite the fact that he's 20. Um, now, before the section that you read, um, right at the beginning of the Odyssey, books one to four, Telemachus has this voyage off into um, uh, different parts of Greece in order to find Menelaus and find, um, find out what he knows about his father. This comes across a little bit to me as a little bit of um, like, like a gap year in a way for Telemachus. And certainly he comes back in a way that some people uh, come back from a gap year to, to their first year at university being a bit more like a grown-up figure, you know, having more uh, confidence and more assertiveness. And when it comes to book 21, when we, we really start to focus a little bit more on him again, um, he's got this assertiveness. And the key thing that happens in book 21 is, of course, his assertiveness comes from the fact that he is a son again. The fact that his father's there, he knows the father's there, he knows what's going to happen, he knows that um, the... Uh, the, the fates are going to uh, dictate that Odysseus will take over as leader again and it's not going to be the case that the suitors will have their way, marry his mother and then presumably do away with him so he doesn't try and uh, take over the throne as the, as the kind of the, the heir of Odysseus, if you like. So um, he's got this little bit of confidence going on and he tries to throw his weight around in that kind of sense. Um, he's the one that says to the suitors, go on, have a go with the bow. Um, he's the one earlier on who says to his mother, go upstairs, um, you know, all of these sorts of things are, are men's work. Okay, we may kind of uh, not like that from a modern point of view, but the Greeks would have um, probably, the audience at the time would have probably been nodding along saying, yeah, he's showing that he's a man. He's showing that he's growing up because he's able to treat um, his mother you know, not rudely exactly, although people have seen a bit of rudeness in there, but more a case of in an assertive way. He tries to string the bow and Odysseus stops him. 
What that means, of course, is we're, we're left to think, well, if it hadn't been for Odysseus, he would have strung it. He's a powerful enough character. He, just as Penelope is um, worthy of um, Odysseus, so Telemachus is also, to some degree or other, worthy of his father. So, um, and, and he says, you know, the bow's mine, effectively. You know, I, I'm the one who gets um, to do it. And then, of course, book 22, when Odysseus uh, is instigating the slaughter of the suitors, um, it's not just Odysseus doing it all. Telemachus takes a proper role um, in, you know, in killing Amphinomus. Um, he kind of uh, arranges for the, um, the weapons to be brought in. Um, he sends the slaves out to stop the, um, uh, the, this evil goat herd Melanthius getting um, weapons. Um, and effectively, they are partners, him and his father, in the, um, in the battle against the suitors. The final group that the exam board expects you to be able to discuss uh, are the slaves of Odysseus's household. Now, a household, a palace of the size of Odysseus's would have had many, many, many individuals working to, uh, to keep it all together. But what they want you to do is to talk about the specific named individuals and basically put them into two sides. Are they in the pro-Odysseus camp or the uh, anti-Odysseus camp? Um, and the named ones are, let's start, let's start with uh, the old nurse, Eurycleia. Eurycleia is the one who washes Odysseus's feet. She's the one who spots his um, scar and has that anagnorisis moment, the realisation, hang on, I know who this is. Um, she's, she's clearly on the side of Odysseus. In fact, she locks the suitors in the hall. That moment where the bar comes down clunk and their fate is sealed. And she's the one who purifies the palace after the battle. So she's, so you and Claire, we can put on Team Odysseus. Um, and there are three herds in the book, uh, two of whom, again, are on the side of Odysseus. There's the swine herd, Eumaeus, and the coward, cow herd, uh, Philoicius. And they are also on the side of Odysseus. It's actually quite a nice moment of Odysseus's intelligence when he tests their loyalty whilst still in disguise. A little dramatic, ironic moment where he, he asks them, and if Odysseus were to appear, would you be on his side? He tests their loyalty without appearing to them, without having to beg the question, to which they say, of course you would. So then he knows he can reveal himself to them. And it's quite a nice image towards the end of, the, uh, of our prescription. Yes, we have Telemachus and Odysseus, father and son, uh, side by side in battle. But actually they're joined by these... Um, sort of tin-hatted um, slaves or, or herds who've ended up being drafted in into, into this little um, makeshift army, which is quite a nice image. <clears throat> now, two more named, the two more named slaves of the household, who's, who we can put on a side quite clearly, are on the side of the suitors. And it makes it a little bit easier that their names sound quite similar. We've got Melantho and Melanthius. So Melantho is a slave girl who verbally attacks Odysseus as a beggar. And we have Melanthius, who's the goat herd. And he's the one who actually goes out and supplies weapons for the suitors. 